book of Ruth, and um, that'll be on page 222 if you want to use a pew Bible there next to you. We're going to be beginning in chapter, we'll be looking at the end of chapter 1, but then getting into chapter 2 today. As I said uh, in an email that I sent you folks this week, our family is going to be leaving this afternoon, and I had a couple questions of like, where are you going? And we're going to go to Arkansas or Kansas, and uh, we're going to go hang out in the Ozarks and hopefully enjoy a little bit of cool weather um, and read and have all sorts of fun. So be praying for us as that occurs. Um, in 1986, 1986, if you lived in my hometown, you might see me zipping by on a, a road on a fall day with the T-tops off my Mustang. And you might have heard uh, these, uh, this guitar riff uh, blasting out of my speakers. Is Billy Joel saying, it's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust. And I love that song. I still do today. I, you know, I think about these things as I'm doing sermons, and I, I was like, oh yeah, I need to go back and listen to that song. And I've listened to it all week long, because I just love the music of that. The idea, though, behind the song and the concept of the song is this. In a romantic relationship, when passions ha have kind of subsided, it becomes a partnership where a couple has to trust one another. So the driving lyric of the song, if you will, is, is no matter what's happened to others, it can't happen to us. Why? Because it's always been a matter of trust. It's a matter of trust. Now Webster defines trust as this assured reliance on the character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. So in a romantic relationship or any other relationship, there lies a central element known as trust. How much more so is this with the living God? Do you trust Him? How can you know that you can trust Him? We have been going through Ruth, and we have seen this theme of trust all around the edges of the, of the, of the story, and today it's almost like the, the writer takes us into a, a deep dive of what it is to trust. And so we're going to look at the text and consider living in trust of the living God. So let's look at Ruth 1, 22, and we'll end at verse 2-3. Here is the word of the Lord. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they, became, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose eyes I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It is marvelous to us. 
It is enriching to us. It is encouraging to us. It points us to you. And so draw our attention to you this morning through your word. And let us marvel at who you are. Your grace. and Your mercy. And your love. In Jesus Christ I pray. Amen. One of the purposes of Ruth is to, is to display the glory and the majesty of God in His working so that we can trust Him in our own lives as we go day by day. And now as we look through this passage today, we're going to see this in, in Ruth, and we're going to see three things that we need to kind of grapple with as we learn what is it to trust God? How can we trust God? How do we know we can? What does that, what does that look like exactly? So the first thing we're going to see is we're going to trust and we're going to see how we can trust in God's provision. Secondly, how we can trust in stepping forth in action based on that provision. And then thirdly, how we can trust in God's providence as He leads us along. So let's set the stage for a moment. If you remember in verse 22 of chapter 1, it's kind of a transition statement. We read it last week at the end of chapter 1, and we're reading it here again at the beginning of chapter 2 because it's a really good statement that reviews everything for us. So here they are. Naomi and Ruth have returned from Moab. Ruth, the Scripture says, the Moabite daughter-in-law, the, the, the foreigner, the stranger, the alien was with her her. And what does the text say at the end of verse 22? It's amazing. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So what about God's provision? Do we have trust in God's provision? As we come to this uh, second chapter, we get a view of the hardships of the poor in ancient Palestine. So these ladies have come to Bethlehem to that. And remember, Bethlehem is really, we could translate that as the house of bread. Because Naomi had heard that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. And she and her husband and her sons left. And, and they left Bethlehem, the house of bread. And they went to Moab to find something to eat. And there her husband died. And in the span of ten years, both her sons died. And she was a widow in a foreign land. And so she hears these words, these kind of rumors. And she sets her heart and she says, it's time to go back. And if you remember the, the storyline, Orpah decides not to go with her, but, but Ruth clings to her and says, I will go with you wherever you go. I'll go to the grave. No, with, uh, I'll go to the grave beside you. Because, you know, Naomi would be buried way before Ruth. I'll go to the grave beside you. And not only that, but your people will be my people. And more importantly than that, your God will be my God. So here they return to the house of bread, but there's a problem, isn't there? They don't have much. They don't have much, if anything. They have no food. And it is apparent that Naomi has no immediate family in the area. All of her family from this text must have died off because there's only a distant relative of her husband's that the text mentions, Boaz. And so they had no land in which to grow food. They had no way to access it. So here, even at the beginning of the barley harvest, even though it's the house of bread, what are these ladies to do? No land, no food, no hope, right? Well, not exactly. Not exactly at all. You see, amazingly, God had provided in His law a provision for the poor and the widows of Israel. God's law dis 
displayed particular loving compassion for the orphan and the widow and even the alien by prescribing that the harvesters deliberately leave grain in the corners of their field where these economically exposed classes could go back and gather those things that were there and even things that those people had dropped. This would be the same for vegetable fields. It would be the same for fruit. So if you can imagine like here, you see these big fields of wheat. So they would just leave those corners so that people could go and gather those. And the poor and the orphan and the alien could be taken care of. It was an incredible provision of the Lord. And there are hints of other provisions here, which we'll speak more about later in our study. We see that there's actually a Levite marriage, and that's what that hint is there about that kinsman there in Boaz. Hey, it's almost like a preview of there's this kinsman guy, and, and, and under the uh, Levite marriage, uh, you could be taken care of. And so this kinsman redeemer, all of this, all of this, it's truly amazing. If you think about it, the love and compassion and provision of the Almighty God, even in a rebellious and sinful world, the Lord provides. Now you think about the various provisions given by the Father all throughout Scriptures, especially to us, His believers, His people, Christians. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Think about it. What about Jesus in Matthew 6, 31 and 32? He says, so do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He provides for all of creation, not just believers in Christ. He provides for all of creation, but we who, who honor Him, who worship Him, who praise Him, should see that more than anyone else. How about this? Consider the forgiveness that we have of sin through Christ. Consider the provision of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in us. Consider further His faithful promises throughout the Scripture. Even the promise that He says in Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. As Paul says, and hear these words, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our God. This is our caring God. The God that has provision for us more than you could ever think or imagine. And when I first came to Christ, it's just very interesting. And, and if you're a covenant child here, I want you to hear this because sometimes, you know, I, I became a Christian at, at, a, at an older age. And when I became a Christian, I, I felt the call of God on my life. And I still sometimes go back, are you sure about that? You know, oh, are you sure about that? But I, I believe the call of God was on my life. And there were just certain things that he was calling me to do. Some things were, you know, put away sin, which was really difficult and hard. It still is. Um, 
uh, he was calling me to, I felt like he was calling me to go into ministry. And so I went uh, to my youth pastor and I told him that and he just laughed at me in a good way and said, I think you ought to do something else for a while first because I'd just become a Christian. And I think he was right. I think I needed some time to really think about my faith. But when I did decide that I was going to do that, it, it, was, it was challenging because, um, you know, I was, you know, I mean, like this, I'm just being honest with you, my father had died. At that point, there was enough, uh, I was 14 years old when he died, so there was enough money that um, we could pay off our house, but we lived off Social Security. That's what we lived off of. My mom just felt very called and compelled to stay home and to be with us because I, while I was 14 at the time, my brothers were five and six years old younger than me. And so she felt like, I need to stay home with my boys. That's more important. So we lived off Social Security. We didn't have much. And so when I started looking at going to school, it was like, Where, how's that going to work out? And the Lord provided the Lord provides. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes we miss out by not being poor. I'm just telling you. I think we miss out in our country by having uh, such means. I was reading the other day some, um, something on the internet that said if you make $30,000 a year, I think you make, I think there's only 1.5% of the world that makes that much. I mean, you think about how much we have. It's amazing. But if you're a child of the covenant and you grow up, you know, for me, that was all strange. It was all new trusting God. What I would say to you is this. Don't miss out on those opportunities to trust in the Lord. There'll be plenty of opportunities to do that. Look to Him. He will provide. It's amazing. I can tell you, whether it was in Bible college, I went to a concert one night. They were taking up a love offering. I had 20 bucks in my pocket. That's all I had. I gave that 20 bucks away. The next day in my bell box, I got 40. I mean, the Lord provides. It's amazing. When I was in seminary, we had, we had to repair a car. It's just broken down. We had to fix it. I looked at Chris. I said, there's no presents for the girls this year for Olivia McKay. And she just, just cried and you know, we just had to pray about it and everything. Came back from a Christmas concert. Somebody had stuck $500 in our door. The Lord provides. He provides. And like I said, sometimes I miss that. I miss longing to see Him care for me as a child. Even now, folks, as we think about the capital campaign and making a seat at the table, I struggle to trust. I'm not kidding you. I look at the obstacles before us and I'm like, how in the world, Lord? How in the world? And as soon as I think that, it's almost like the Lord whispers in my ear, oh, I'm a provider. I'll provide. He will provide. So here's the thing you got to see in this. You just have to see it. His provisions is, are of the richest affair. They are filled with love and graciousness. And what is interesting with this even is that as this is the case for all of God's people, no matter what economic bracket you're in, 
We can see here in the text that all through scriptures, we are called to live in trust of this. And that brings us to another closing point in this first point. Or it says this, These charitable provisions of the law and theology behind them, it was to remind God's people of their unique status among the nations of the world. While everyone had to make a living and put food on the table, making a living was not to consume the attention of God's people. God's people were not to lose sight of ministering to others in Yahweh's name. In other words, those people that owned those fields were to be a great blessing to other people. And they could because God had been a great blessing to them. You see, blessing is all just passed around from God to each other, to another, to another, to another. So we are not only to trust in God's provision for us, but we are to live so generously to others that out of the generosity of the Father, which it all again comes from, that has been granted to us that in His name, He may be glorified. That's how we're to live as a people. And the marvel. So as much as it is a wonderful blessing to see God provide for you, It is a wonderful blessing for you to provide for others. So let's, with that provision in mind then, go to the second point. As we trust in God and stepping forth in action. Now we can somewhat imagine what it was like for Naomi and Ruth to be in a state they were in. Uh, We might be also to be able to imagine what it would be like them to to feel perhaps uh, paralyzed and unable to move in a situation like this. However, faithful Ruth, ever faithful Ruth, steps forward. Verse 2, she said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now, don't you notice a few things here? The first thing is, is that she doesn't say to her mother-in-law, Let me go out and just visit the ladies. Let me go out to town and hang out with them. Let me just go walking in the fields. I need some fresh air. I just need to be alone. I need some me time. She doesn't do that. She doesn't sit at home and wring her hands and worry about what they should do or not do. I wonder what God's will is in this situation. I want, he's got to show me. I wonder what God's going to do. Uh, should I go or should I stay? What should I do? You know? She's not paralyzed by her own selfishness. She's not paralyzed by fear. She just goes. Because she understands. She understands. As one writer says, some may be under the impression that waiting on the Lord is like waiting on an Amtrak. If you stand around long enough, you'll get a train. Or you'll hear from the Lord. Not Ruth. Not Ruth. It was obvious that the provision the Lord had made, and she knew it, and it was before her, and so she took a step of faith. She gets to work with what was right in front of her. She obviously had a belief that God would provide for her and Naomi. Now listen, this was, this was an act of faith. Um, even with God's provision, To the aliens, some may have sought to forbid the Moabitess from gleaning. You never knew, actually, what the attitude of the landowners and workers would be. They may shoo her off, run her off. 
Furthermore, as a woman and an outsider, she was especially vulnerable, as you can imagine. She had to be careful where she went. So she had to get to a place where she would find someone who would look upon her with favor. And so even as she steps out the door, even as she goes to that, that's what she's looking for, for someone who would show favor to her. That's the prayer of her own heart. So we have to ask the question, where does that favor come from? It can only come from God. It is He who grants favor in the hearts of others for His people. And you'll see Him to say, pray for those things all throughout the Scripture. And yet, it is another marvelous provision that He endows those He cares for to have favor in the sight of others. And so here Ruth is, as she's humbly seeking this favor, and she does so trusting God while stepping forth in action. So now listen to me. To live by faith, to live in trust, means to take God at His word and then act upon it. Uh, James 2.20 says, Faith without works is dead. And so she trusted in the provision of God. She knew what the law was. She understood it. And so she takes those steps by faith. And the first thing we need to understand is, is that if we want to walk this way before the Lord, we need to understand the provision the Lord has for us. So we need to consider the many carefully laid out provisions in the Scripture. There's many promises there in the Scriptures. And we're called to know them. We're called to trust them. We're called to trust Him in these things. Now secondly, in light of those provisions, His promises, His work, His indicatives for us on our behalf in Christ Jesus specifically, He has called us to live by faith and to live in light of those. So let me ask you a question. Where might the Lord want you to take an action step? I remember, again, as that young Christian, having the angst of trusting in God and the steps I believe you'd have me take. You know, can I trust you, Lord? Can I really trust you? Will you let me down? Or it's almost like at that stage in my life in faith, I was like, are you for real? Are you really who you say you are in the Scripture, God? Can I live in such a way that you take care of my means? That you provide the money that I need for college? That every day you meet the, just the basic needs of food and car and the things that I need? What about you? Might it be a calling to a new career? Might it be a new service opportunity that's before you? Might it be that He's asking you to give more than you ever thought possible in some way when it comes to time or money or talents? Might He be prompting you to share the gospel with someone or in some way that causes you fear and anxiety? Or how about this? Maybe He's calling you to just take the everyday normal step of action of loving your wife, Loving your children. Loving your co-workers. Of getting up out of the bed and going to work every day. Or getting up and going to class. 
or fixing the next meal or washing the dishes or washing your clothes or whatever a normal day looks like to you. Even coming to worship. Listen, all of it. All of it. Every single bit of it for the Christian is for the glory of His name as we simply live before Him in righteousness. What is so very miraculous is that even in those everyday things of life, just like we see here with Ruth, this is an everyday thing. She has no idea what's going on behind the scenes. None. She's just going out to feed her her and her mother-in-law. Daily stuff. What's going on? God is at work behind the scenes. He is accomplishing all His holy will. He uses ordinary events to advance His purposes in this world. And He's still doing that today. Sometimes I love to open the newspaper and look at it in those terms. Why is that man being elected to that office? Why is that law coming to pass? Why are they saying those things? And we look at it sometimes and we think, like the old movie, have the gods gone crazy? But the reality is, is that God is not crazy. He's not gone crazy. He is in charge of everything. And He's working it all out according to His purposes. So let me make it personal. For some, they may look at it and say, Obama was the greatest president to ever live. Some may be saying, I'm voting again for Trump because he's great. It's the Lord who puts those men in office. That's what the Scripture says. And that's what I find maddening about the internet sometimes, is I see Christians bashing all of them. And I'm like, you know, you're standing on dangerous ground here because the Lord says we're to honor those people and to pray for them. Doesn't matter what your political platform is. That's what the scripture says. So we need to be careful. The Lord is orchestrating all these things and he has called us to action. So that action may just simply be, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to pray for that president I don't like. You see? I'm going to pray for that governor I don't like. I'm going to pray for that man I love. Whatever the case is. So this brings us to our last point. We see his provision. And so it calls calls us to step out in action as believers in Christ. And we need to trust in the providence of God. Our trust in God's providence. As Ruth set out and she went gleaned in the field after the reapers, the text says this. Notice the text. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. If you have the NIV, it translates it this way, as it turned out. So the ESV has, she, she's happened to. Literally, the Hebrew reads this way, her chance chanced upon. That's what the Hebrew literally reads, her chance chanced upon. Ruth found herself gleaning in the fields that belonged to Boaz, that relative that's mentioned in the first verse there in chapter 2. They're bookends. One, verse 1 and verse 3 are bookends. Boaz is, is there. And so the, 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 re, the, the writer of the Scriptures is trying to get us to see that. To her, it seemed casual, didn't it? She's just doing what she's supposed to do. 
She did not know whose field she was in. She had no reason for going to that field more than any other, and yet God's providence directed her steps to this field. This week, I was talking to a brother, and um, I was talking to him about uh, just, uh, some difficulties I was having this week, and I was telling him a story about it, and he, he quoted a proverb to me, and I was like, man, I need to be in the Proverbs more. All those relational things are in the Proverbs. And I mean, he just quoted this one. It was perfect for this situation. It's so a Proverbs 16.33 about this point declares, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Remember Proverbs 16.9. It says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So do you understand that this, it just so happened, this by a stroke of luck, her chance chanced upon is in reality, the Lord is drawing our attention to this expression to get us to think about His providence in the life of these women and in our lives as well. In reality, the text is shouting to us, see the hand of God at work here. The same hand that sent the famine in chapter 1, verse 1, and later provided food in chapter 1, verse 6, is the hand that brought Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem precisely at the beginning of the harvest, verses, I mean, chapter 1, verse 22, and has now guided Ruth to that portion of the field belonging specifically to Boaz. Ruth was exactly where God wanted her for the next stage of His will to be done. So here's the thing. He wisely orders small events. And those that seem altogether contingent serve His glory and the good of His people. Many great affairs are brought about by a little turn which may seem incidental to us but is directed by the providence with design. Uh, John Yates uh, uh, in Leadership Journal wrote about the, the survivor, and he was the only survivor of a shipwreck, and he was on an island, and, and he, was strugg you know, he was struggling to live, and um, he goes and he, he, he tries to get some food. He's watching out for ships. He's looking every day. Can he find? He just gets discouraged, and he decides I need to build a place, so he builds a hut. He builds his hut. He gathers the stuff that he could get off the ship. He puts it in there. And while he's out getting food, he comes back and his hut is on fire. And he just grabs his head and he looks and he's like, oh my, you know, everything I've got is in that hut. And it's burning. And what am I going to do? And he falls into grief. Next morning he wakes up and he sees a ship on the horizon. And the ship pulls up, and he's known. I've been here weeks and weeks and weeks, and nobody's ever seen me, and no, one, no ship comes by here. He asks the guy, why in the world did you stop? And he says, I saw your smoke signal. Providence. John Wesley's father, Samuel, was a dedicated pastor, but there were those in his parish who did not like him. On February 9, 1709, a fire broke out. In the rectory of Epworth, possibly set by one of the rector's enemies. Please don't burn my house down, okay? <clears throat> I wouldn't like that. That would be very hurtful. 
Young John was not yet six years old. John Wesley was not yet six years old, and he was stranded on the upper floor of the building, and two neighbors rescued the lad just seconds before the roof crashed in. One neighbor stood on the other's shoulders and pulled young John through the windows, and Samuel Wesley said, Come, neighbors, let's kneel down. Let's give thanks to God, for He has given me all my eight children. Let the house go. I'm rich enough. John Wesley often referred to himself after that as the brand plucked out of the fire from Zechariah 3, 2 and Amos 4, 11. In the years that came after that, he noted February 9th in his journals and he gave thanks for God and his mercy. Now here's the thing. Samuel Wesley labored for 40 years in Epworth and saw little fruit. But I want you to consider what his boys have done, John and Charles. You see, here's the point you never know. God is working out his purposes. You never know. Let me ask you a question. Might there be someone in here who has a child, whom that child has a child, and that child has a child? And they're the next great evangelist like Billy Graham or Billy Sunday. Or maybe they're the next great theologian like John Calvin. We never know. God is providentially working out all things. I could give you story after story and you probably could to me too. This providential working out in our lives is a delight and it's, and it's a mystery and it's incredible to think about. God is constantly working, as the scripture says, with us, in us, and for us to accomplish his great, his great pleasures and his desires and his purposes. For us on this side, we pray we seek His will, we make decisions, and sometimes we make mistakes. But it is God who orders events and lovingly guides His children in the grace and the love of His beloved Son. So brothers and sisters of Christ, grasp it. Trust in God's provision. Take action based on that provision. And then trust that God is working behind the scenes to accomplish His will. I'm reading a book right now by Os Guinness. And Os Guinness says, you know, the reality is, is that you're going to be gone about 100 years from now. And in another 500 years from now, nobody will ever know you existed. God does. And He loves you. And He's caring for you. And He will.